When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. For this season of Working, we left the East Coast behind and flew to Detroit. We're speaking with eight people who are drawing on the city's complex history as they work to create its future. For this episode, we were hoping to get a sense of Detroit's city government. To that end, we sat down with Alexis Wiley, who serves as chief of staff to Detroit's mayor. Wiley, who was a local television reporter until a few years ago, talks to us about the details of her job today and gets into the nitty-gritty of day-to-day scheduling in a role where you have to be on basically all of the time. She also discusses the challenges of some of the systemic problems that Detroit faces, including intergenerational poverty and land distribution. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Wiley tells us about her work on Detroit's Project Greenlight, an effort to install police cameras outside of businesses around the city. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Alexis Wiley, and I am chief of staff for Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. So what does that mean? Where do you fit into like an organizational chart of the mayoral office here? So I am essentially second in command, along with it, with a few other people who are, who are on the same level, but I'm number two, essentially, mm-hmm. for in the mayor's office for the mayor. Detroit population, something like 750,000? No, we're, we're at like 677. 677, okay. Much number. more exact than my numbers yeah. there. Yeah, six, we, we track that very closely. <laughs> I would imagine. So what is the mayor's office doing in a city of this size? I mean, what are you overseeing? The way the mayor explained the job when he hired me, because I, I came into this role in a, a really non-traditional way. I was a reporter for three and a half years at the local Fox affiliate here, and he hired me to be spokesperson in the administration. And um, we, I, I did that for three months, and then I was promoted to chief of staff in May. And when I joined, I joined in February of 14. And the way he explained the job was basically making sure that our external statements fit our internal actions. Hmm. So when the mayor says that he wants to um, make something happen within the city, it's, it's my job to make sure and our, our team's job, really, I don't want to make it seem like it's really me. We have a team of people. But really, in this role, the job is to make sure that all the pieces that are necessary are connecting. And we're all moving the ball forward to achieve the mayor's vision for the city of Detroit. Can you give us an example of that, a statement that the mayor might make and where that would lead you and your team? So, so an example of that was when... The water department was first was under the control of the emergency manager and was coming un- under the control of the mayor. One of the things we knew we did not have was an assistance plan to help people who were in danger of shutoff. It was something that the city didn't didn't have, and at the time, the emergency manager's team was very focused on the fiscal aspect of things, right? But the mayor was like, "We've got to have a response to the human component of this." So my job was to to basically pull all the pieces together and launched the city's first assistance program. Mm -hmm. 
and that required fundraising. That that required first figuring out the subject matter experts and the people who worked in the water department, people who um, worked with people who were in need of, of assistance, um, the philanthropic community, and then coming together and coming up with a plan that would allow people to pay their bill regularly because we know that's in order for the, the water system to function, it requires people to pay, but also create a way to help people mm-hmm. make that happen, to help people pay. How do you keep everything straight if there are various projects in motion at any given time? So you know what's, uh, what's interesting? I, I, you know, you try to keep a lot of it in your head. But as you can see, I've got this board here. Mm -hmm. And I try to put the things that I'm thinking the most about that feel the hottest on my my board. Um, And sometimes it's super packed. Sometimes it's not um, because things are moving forward. But if I need to be thinking about something, I need to see it up here. Um, we, we also have a, a project management software that we use mm. that lists a lot of different initiatives. It, to me, I'm, I'm better with kind of thinking, okay, what's hot? Write this on my board. I sit at my desk. I see it. And it's like this mental trigger that's like, oh, I need to make sure I check in on this. Or what's happening with the, with the rollout of our, our um, next phase of our plan? What are we doing in regards to the building of, of this department? Can you tell us a little bit about your office that we're in right now? So I think when anyone who comes into my office, it's clearly a working office because I have so many papers on so many different topics and typically there it's, it's a a little bit um, messier than it is now, but (laughs) um, my office is really like my space, right? So this used to be Kevin Orr's office and the way it was set up before was the desk and the conference table were connected so that essentially it was like you could sit at your desk and kind of lord over the other people that you're meeting with. Mm. Um, And I don't know if he ever sat like that. I'm just saying that was how it was set up. And I purposely separated it so that there's a workspace for like collaboration next Which is to at a right angle to your right your desk. exactly and it's not connected to my desk. I don't sit at my desk when I have meetings. We sit here at this table and we collaborate and come up with ideas. Um, and then I have a glass board that is um, near my table and it's where we write our ideas. And people will tell you I like to like just stand up and start like writing. I think I'm, I have a. Um, Maybe I kind of like wanted to be a teacher at some point, so which is why I like the board and the markers. Um, and then when I first moved in, I felt like it was so sterile. And um, I came in on a weekend and painted the wall. The navy, the, uh, navy blue. Wall. Mm-hmm. I painted it navy accent wall, actually, with my my boyfriend at the time, who's no longer my boyfriend, but that was one of the good things that came out of that relationship. <laughs> we, <laughs> he got this wall done, and he did a very, very, very good job at it's it. nicely painted. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, you know, one of the best things about it is there's a really cool view of the water and the riverfront and, you know, and Canada, right? So I feel that like Canada? that's Canada right there. Oh, my God. Windsor. So oh. you, you, you get a chance to kind of see, like, this is an international city. Right across from Canada with a beautiful river walk that, you know, we've been really intentional on making sure that it remained public and that um, we incentivize real public usage of um, our beautiful spaces. So I, I, I love it. And then you see right on, on towards the just a little east, you can see the Renaissance Center, which is GM headquarters, right? Mm. Um, and tons of other companies are there. So it's a it's an interesting position to kind of remind you of, or it reminds me rather, of the importance of our city and the importance of the work that we're doing every single day. In uh, over in your window, there's what looks to be a Frida Kahlo doll popping out of a flower pot. Um. Okay. So <laughs> that's so funny. Um. Okay. So the Frida Kahlo doll, I really like Frida Kahlo, and I went to this exhibit when there was the DIA um DIA exhibit on Frida. The Detroit and, Institute of Arts. Yes, yes, and um, I got the Frida doll. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure why I put her in the pot, but <laughs> it feels like it works. And then she next, looks like she's popping up to say hello. Yeah, I know it's kind of ridiculous, but it also like you know I'm not necessarily a designer, um, but she she seems to have found her space. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I feel good about that one. The next two, her is a picture of my me and my sister, um, who lives in LA, who's like one of my best friends. And it's my birthday party, my 30th birthday, um, which was a few years ago. But um, it was my birthday party. Then I randomly have a picture. I'm gonna go get that. Can I go get it mm -hmm. for, for you? Okay. So I have this random picture. This picture is me when I was a reporter interviewing the mayor in his 2013 campaign. <laughs> I had no clue what was gonna happen. I had no clue where I was gonna go or whether he was gonna win. Had no access that anybody else had. But when I came into the office, there was this like, we had these like, these picture frames um, that were stuffed in a um, closet and randomly that picture was in it. <laughs> and I was like, how crazy, how, <laughs> I mean, it, it reminds me of how much can change with the blink of an eye. And uh, who would have known that back in 2013 when I was the reporter interviewing the guy running for mayor, that I would become his chief of staff. You're listening to Alexis Wiley, chief of staff to the Detroit mayor. After this brief break, she tells us about what it was like to take on a managerial role as she joined the mayor's office. What are your daily responsibilities? I mean, it sounds like from week to day to day, right, week right. to week, I imagine that it's, it's going to fluctuate a lot. But Absolutely. are there certain things that you find you're doing every day or almost every day? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's so being chief of staff is is a job where you often go from issue to issue that requires your attention, mm -hmm. while at the same time trying to keep an eye on the other ongoing initiatives that we're trying to move forward. Right. So on a day to day basis, I am one. We, we start every week going through scheduling, which is where we go through the mayor's full calendar to see who's he meeting with, what media is he doing, does he have everything he needs to be prepared. Um, that's like one of the first things we do. It's actually one of the most, I would say scheduling is one of the most important and the toughest jobs in government to me. I mean, mm -hmm. because, and especially really working with the principal, with, with the mayor. So um, our scheduler, Samantha Talbot, does a fantastic job, but we all come together to make sure that all the, the key group execs have access to his calendar and know what they need to be prov providing to make sure that the mayor's prepared and he has everything he needs. Because, um, you know, the, the one thing you can't get back is time. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure that his time is being used in the best way. Is there a briefing book that you put together every we day put or together, something? So Samantha puts together a... Um, so. It's funny, the mayor's not a big fan of briefing books because okay. things change so much. The book is worthless by the end of the day sure. when you first like put it together. But um, we all have calendars on our phone and he really like we make sure that all his details are there. He's got everything he needs right there at his fingertips. And if he needs something else, he can ask somebody. So Samantha is really the keeper of that. And then part of my job is to make sure that I've gone through the calendar to see, OK, do we have all the different pieces there? Um, and it, it can be difficult because so much fluctuates throughout the day. Um, the mayor's really a, a hands-on mayor, so um, he he will make the calls he needs to make to make sure that that things are moving forward and, and that he has every detail um, on on the key things we're working on. So scheduling's one piece. I am constantly talking to 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 communications. Communications is probably I mean every day there's a media request that comes in or um, something that we're doing where we've got to be pushing our message, but at the same time, um, responding to reporters because we want to make sure that we're responsive because um, that's a key way that people, especially people in our, our community, stay on top of what's happening within their government. Your own background is, is in media. You are yeah. a reporter. Does that help when when you're handling media requests? A absolutely. Absolutely. It's been invaluable because I think, you know, I know how press for time reporters are. It's all about making sure that you can hit deadlines and we have to be moving just as quickly as they are. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it has been really helpful for me. Um, and I would say that I, I probably spend maybe 
50% of my time focused on communication specifically. So even if you left that communications job, you're absolutely. still in that role to some extent. Well, and, and I, I came up to or this role to through the, right. the communications department and, and really kind of built it out to, to what it is now. Um, but I, I, I think that when you're, when you're in communications, and I think as journalists, you see the world differently, and, and you're really taught to see the world through the eyes of an average person. And for me, that's been invaluable because, you know, in government, there's so much stuff that like has to happen and there's the bureaucracy and you've got contracts, you've got all these different, you know, different pieces, but it helps to be able to kind of, you know, take a moment to step back and just kind of think, okay, why are we really doing this? And that's because we've got to make sure that we're always connected to what's going to impact our community and what people will care about most. Um, the mayor is, is fantastic at doing that, but I think having a background in communications, and not even communications, in journalism, as a journalist, you you have to understand how people think about something, what they care about at any given moment, and how you can best give voice to it. And I think those, those skills have been um, invaluable to me in this role. Was it easy for you to uh, shift into that kind of managerial role? Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it wasn't easy. I think I, I have a, a personality for it. Um, the way the mayor tells the story of how I got into this role. Um, he, he likes, he said I was bossy. I, I take issue with that. I don't think I'm necessarily bossy, but we had a, a situation where uh, one of our, our, our former fire commissioner was dealing with an issue. And it was actually a. It came to me through the media, um, you know, bringing it up to my, bringing it to my attention. And I came up with a solution, and I shared it with the mayor, and he was like, "That's perfect." And he was like, "That's what you know, chief of staff should be doing is coming up with solutions to the problems that we face on a day to day basis." So that skill has helped me. But I think for you to grow as a manager, you have to become comfortable with. It's not all about you. And the more that you can empower your team to go out and, and achieve the goals as outlined by the mayor, the better off we'll all be. Um, there was a time where I had to personally do a lot. And now I think we've built out a team where you can let them come up with, come up with, with, with basically their roadmap of how we achieve the mayor's goals. And my job is really make sure we stay you know, it, that we're, stay, we're staying focused on his goals and that we're actually achieving them. But at the same time, you don't want to stifle their creativity. You don't want to stifle their talent because you hired them for a reason. So I think one of the toughest parts about becoming a manager is learning how much you personally need to do and how much you should let your team do. And I, I met with, um, you know, when I first got into the role and I was, you know, learning, I met with a, a local exec in town and he told me, he was like, Basically, giving other people jobs has never cost me a job. And that was because he was like, you know, so many people feel like you personally have to be doing all these different things to be valuable. But oftentimes that only leads to you being scattered, right? But if you are able to build a strong team and empower that team to accomplish goals and get things done, you can do so much more and you can think about different things. And it just, it's, it's, that's how I've watching my my team, especially the communications department, watching them grow and watching them do things and come up with ideas that I had never even thought about and having them turn out to be awesome is is probably the coolest thing for me. And it tells me how much I'm growing as a manager because they're achieving, which means that we as a city are achieving. Do you spend a lot of time checking in with your team? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it happen in person, over email? Texting, mostly. Really? I, I mean, literally, I, I will... I, I, my phone blows up at all times and uh-huh. I typically have um, like five or six text messages at any point with someone updating me with an issue or asking me a question or responding to a question that I've asked previously. Um, so it's really how we, it's, it's how we communicate. Does that stress you out though? Um, yeah. I mean, there are moments where you get stressed out. Yeah. I mean, having that many people who are in one way or another laying claim to some of your time yeah i mean it, it, it my time is not necessarily my own 
most mm. of the time, you know, because you have so many different things happening all over the city. At any given time, there can be multiple issues all going and you have to figure out how to respond to each, whether it's, you know, a departmental issue that we're dealing with or something that's happening inside the office or a scheduling issue. They're all, they're just, this job is all about keeping the balls in the air and making sure that, that, that they don't drop because, again, for us to be successful as a city, we have to work really well as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what we're really focused on, on doing. What does that mean, though, for the shape of your days? I mean, are you, presumably, it's not like you get to turn on your phone at 9 and right. then turn it off at 5. I mean, if you're, if you're doing your business over your phone via text message, if some of the business that you're doing has to do with, I assume, urgent emergencies and other issues that are happening throughout the city, are you always on? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, the honest answer. I'm always on. Um, my, I probably I wake up at 5. And I go to the gym, but the first thing I do is I t- check my phone mm-hmm. to see if I got any text messages overnight. And then from probably six, seven, maybe around seven a.m., me and um, Dave Masteron, our, our our deputy chief of staff, are texting about some issue, not always heavy issues, but just like in touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll have a, a, a text from John Roach, our um, director of media relations, and he's talking about something that's going to happen in the day or some inquiry that came in. Then I will get a text from a department that would say, hey, Alexis, heads up, this is going on. What do you think about this? Or this issue is heading up to council. Um, have you weighed in? Or, you know, what do you think about it? Um, and and then it just goes on. And, or even a, you know, Somebody outside the mayor's office will reach out to me, someone who is a, a you know, business leader or uh, oftentimes it's average people because when I was a reporter, everybody had my cell phone. Mm. So and I never changed my number. I, I did that on purpose. So you use your personal phone for. I, I Yeah, we just your personal phone number. Right. For, so and I still because I didn't want to change my phone number that I had when I was out on the street because that's part of how, how people connected with me and that I was accessible. So um, now. People will text me about issues they're having in, in their neighborhood. Um, they'll text me about an event that they, they want the mayor to come to, which is something that um, I get a lot of those. Mm-hmm. But it's all about keeping everything moving. So oftentimes my day won't end till 7, 8 o'clock at night. And then it just goes on from there. So I, I think – and then I'm, I'm in bed by 10, 10.30, and then you start it again. But – I mean, I, you you are kind of tethered to your phone. That that's one piece of, of this. That it's it's not. I mean, I, I I don't know what I would do without my phone because literally it keeps me connected to every single thing. And then throughout the day, I'm constantly checking news sites to see what are people talking about in the city. Mm-hmm. And you know, did this story that we thought was a big deal is it being treated as a big deal, or the story that I would hope was not treated as a big deal? Maybe it is. How do I respond? So I, I'm asking myself questions like that throughout the day. So you are always on. Right. Um, but I also think I kind of have a personality like that because as a reporter, you're always on, right? Um, I think as a reporter, I probably had more downtime where like when you're done and your story's done, it's not like you have to kind of keep following it unless it's a really big story for you, right? Um, but that in this job, you can't do that. You have to keep track of everything because it doesn't really go away. You know, and when you launch an initiative, it has to continue. You have to make sure it's working well. Um, departments are constantly working. Um, but I think the best thing that we have is we've got a really great team of, of, of leaders who are committed to the city, who all work 24-7 and do whatever it takes to make sure that we're moving the city forward, but also are treating Detroit residents as our customers, right? Mm. I mean, I'm here to serve them and improve our city, right? That, that's an interesting term, though, customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To describe the, the citizens that you're working with and for. Um, why, why the business-like language? You know, I, so for me, I, I, I like the term customer and that I, I've, I feel like people pay taxes, right? They pay for a service that we as a city are supposed to provide. 
We're supposed to provide the basics. We're supposed to make sure that lighting is working. We're supposed to make sure that trash is getting picked up. We're supposed to make sure that we're expanding city services. We're supposed to make sure we're offering opportunities. So in my head, I it, it's this constant rem- reminder that there is someone that I really do work for, and I'm I am serving every single day. And we've been really intentional about making sure that that mindset moves through the departments as well. Because there was a time when it it wasn't necessarily the culture. But I think in a lot of our public-facing departments, we're working to change that. And I think we've seen some improvement. If everyone in the city, every citizen is your customer, though, and and if a lot of them have your cell phone number, as yeah. it sounds like is the case, there must be days and times when people are asking things of you or, or hoping for things that you can't provide. Every single day. Every single day. There's there's always something that um, there's a lot I can do. There are certain things that we can't do or haven't gotten to, right? Um, I think you, you do have to focus yourself around achieving certain goals, and as you knock them off, you get to more. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it is a regular shifting target and there are certain things where you know someone might come forward with a request or an idea and and we end up doing it or there's some way that we're already addressing it but um you do have to make sure that you're focused on your priorities you can't get um you can't get moved off center because there there are always going to be eight million competing interests everyone's going to have their own idea but it's all about making sure that that we stay focused on the priorities that we feel will be the most impactful in our city You're listening to Alexis Wiley. In a moment, she talks about dealing with crises, including a police shooting that happened earlier this year, shortly before we recorded the episode that you're listening to now. How do your days change when some kind of crisis crops up? I mean, what, what, what are some of the kind of crises that you deal with in the mayor's office here? God. Um, the thing about this job, too, is like, I think... The goal is to make things look seamless. Like you rarely talk about your crises sure. because publicly they should not feel like crises. They're crises for me in that I have to drop every single thing and um, figure it out. I mean, I, I think we have we have crises on a a regular basis, but I think it's a def- for me. It's all about just just management, right? So when I say crisis, I feel like you know a, a crisis is something that can't be fixed. Typically, it's something that's just a really hot issue that needs your attention right this moment. And you drop everything else and you focus your attention there. Um, But you also have a team of people who are managing the other aspects of of things that are are not so hot, right? Mm -hmm. Or you just know that that you can come back to it. So last night there was a shooting you mentioned Mm -hmm. to us uh, earlier before we started. Right. Um, What can can you tell us a little about that? So... um, we had an officer, two, two, two officers were responding to a domestic violence call um, on Sunday night. And right as they got to the door where the call was, where they were responding, someone, it appears right now with the detail, details we've got so far, that there was someone who saw them who was unrelated to the incident, who was either in the building or, or nearby, who fired at the officers shot one in the head, and the other officer killed the, um, killed the shooter. Um, the officer is in critical condition. That, I, I would describe that as a, I mean, that's a crisis, right? That's, that's, that's something that is, we all stop. Right. Everything stops. What does that mean for your office? Um, it means that, I mean, the first thing we do is, is one, you know, we've got an amazing chief, Chief, chief Craig, who does a great job with the department. Um, when he gets a notification like that, he drops everything and goes to the hospital. Mm-hmm. He calls the mayor mm-hmm. on the way to the hospital um, and updates him. And we think, okay, what do we need to support this family? What are the details of this? What do we need to share publicly? And how do you do it in the best way to be respectful? Because while you have one person who's been injured you have a whole police force and a community that are impacted so how do we best support each other during this time so um the mayor you know we had to blow out his calendar this morning and he went to the hospital 
And what he does is, is before there's any media or anything, he sits down with the family. He sits, that's the first thing he does. He sits down with the officers. And then at 11 a.m., you know, John Roach, our, our director of media relations, went over to the hospital and was with him. And at 11 o'clock, they had a, a press update. And, you know, those are, those are hard because for the mayor, you know, he's, he's someone, probably one of the most genuine people I know. And um, it, it's, you know, watching him on TV, seeing him do the press conference, seeing the chiefs, seeing the families, it, it hurts all of us. It hurts all of us. Um, and you know, the officer is not in good condition. He's, they, they're claim they, they say his condition's deteriorating, right? Pretty soon. Um, you know, I'm, I'm truly hopeful that I, that he will pull through and I'm praying like everybody else in the city. Um, but we've been through this before. I mean, we've had seven officers who were like shot or killed, um, within, just a period of months hmm. when something like that happens. I mean, that is, that's, that's been tough to deal with. Um, and the violence overall has been tough to deal with. Right. Um, I think we're doing a lot to try to drive it down, but it, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I was this past Friday, I spoke at the officer of the year award with the, the Detroit police sponsored by the Detroit police officers association. And it focused on, all the different officers in every district who just did so many amazing things to help people, to protect our community, put their lives on the line. And when something like this happens, it is a reminder of just how much they are putting out there, just how much their families are, um, are doing. It's a, that's, that's one of those things that, that stops, stops everything, changes how you're going to, move and, and, and I think you know it's it's a it's a really unfortunate I would say reality of the job is dealing with things like that or heinous crime something like you know um, and then having to talk about them right you know you don't just get to don't have to just watch them or even when I was a reporter and you'd cover it there was still a level of being able to to detach in a way um, but when you have to think through what's um the response and and a response that caters that that not only addresses the needs of our residents but also the police officers the city employees and the officer and, and his family um and, and the police department does a great job and they're really focused on that now um i mean at this moment when i say now mm -hmm. but um yeah it's probably one of the toughest parts do incidents like that make it more difficult to focus on the more mundane everyday tasks that that would normally fill your time it does it does um it does but at the same time i think we have a responsibility to be moving on all fronts right so you've got to be focused on the fire in front of you but also moving the ball forward right because I think if you're only stuck in crisis mode, you never actually progress. Mm -hmm. So I always think of, of the workday in two different tracks. Now there's some that will totally derail everything, but um, the, the reason why you build a team of, of competent people is because you've gotta be moving, firing on all fronts. So um, an example of that is, you know, while the mayor was at the, um, was at the, the the hospital with um, with the officer's family and with um, our police chief and the command staff. Um, you know, and, and John Roach, our media relations director, was there. We also are thinking about relaunching the um, expansion of the Detroit Promise this afternoon, which is a Detroit Promise is a program that makes it so that every kid who graduates, lives in the city of Detroit, graduates from a Detroit high school, gets community college for free but then also an expansion of a program where kids who have certain um, GPA and ACT scores will get four-year in-state college for free. So we're announcing that the Kellogg Foundation is um, giving an additional $3.5 million 
to the Detroit Promise. We're doing that at the end of the day today. Um, we just knocked down the old animal control site, which was the site of a lot of protests and was not a um, was really an antiquated building. Mm-hmm. We're knocking that down and incorporating it into um, a Riverside Park for Southwest Detroit, and it's going to be the home of a dog park. <laughs> which shows you how our, our people have a great sense of humor. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, you have to be moving forward as a city. You've got to constantly be moving. One element of that, and you alluded to this earlier, is that Detroit historically in the last few decades, probably especially, has been a city with enormous uh, economic, levels of economic inequality, I yeah. think it's fair to say, yeah. uh, and, and considerable and poverty. I, right. And I would almost say not as much as the economic inequality. I would say that you have more poverty, more widespread poverty mm-hmm. across the city. It's probably the, the, the more reality of what we're, we're dealing with. Um, I think now you, there's, there are aspects where, you know, you've got the image of downtown, which oftentimes dominates the media landscape, right? Um, but you still have the reality of widespread poverty across our city. Mm-hmm. So for us, we really are focused on really how do we interrupt the inter- intergenerational poverty cycle, right? Mm-hmm. What do we have to do? And that really goes, goes, goes to really investing in our neighborhoods, increasing educational opportunities, and workforce training and bringing jobs. So really that's that becomes the reality of who we are as a city i think is is really really guides our policy and our initiatives that we take when you look at what we're doing across our departments we uh you know we've been talking to a lot of people in different lines of work Mm -hmm. um different uh one of the one of the folks that we've spoken with uh in this series is uh, urban farmer and he is working on about an acre, opinionated guy. And, mm-hmm. and, and his one of the things he was saying is that, that he wishes that the city would make it easier for people like him, people who are kind of trying to work from the ground up, literally, mm-hmm. in his case, mm-hmm. uh, to acquire more property. Is that a kind of issue that you think about in this office? Oh, yeah. How to, how to help people take advantage of? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things the mayor did was transfer vast majority of the city of city owned property to the land bank because the land bank could um, really has the ability to move faster in terms of getting people land. Hmm. One thing that had had been a, an unfortunate reality in, in this town was you had so many people across the city who were taking care of the vacant lot next door to them, mm-hmm. right? They had um you know, they, they, they did all sorts, of, they do all sorts of things, right? So you'll have um, one person who might use the lot as a playground. Um, I know this, this, this one woman who, who lives on the east side and she uses hers to um, teach Zumba classes. Like she's, <laughs> they, I mean, people do all sorts of cool things, community gardens, all sorts of things, right? But for the longest, it took forever to get through the city's bureaucracy for you to actually own the lot. So people mm-hmm. spent years maintaining this, this, these, the, this, the lot next door to their houses and not knowing whether the city or would, would sell it to somebody else, not knowing so what was going to happen. Somebody could build anything because you don't own it, right? right? So how do we, you know, it's hard to make a real investment when you don't own it. Mm-hmm. So the mayor launched our side lot program where the land bank now sells side lots to neighbors for 100 bucks. You come in, you pay your hundred bucks, make sure your taxes and everything good, and you can sign on the dotted line. It's yours. And we just passed, um, we just passed a, a milestone of selling seven thousand side lots across the city, um, because you know people have wanted to do this. It's all about. I mean, the city owns far too much land. We're we're not in, trying to be in the business of just holding on to land. We've got to get it back into the hands of people who use it, but also. Get it into the hands of people who will use it responsibly, because another problem we've had and st- and still have are people who buy properties and basically treat them like a lottery ticket and say, I'm not going to put any money into this. Meanwhile, the neighborhood continues to suffer around it. There's someone who's living next door. There's a business who's trying to operate who's now suffering because you think blight's okay 
because you've got your golden lottery ticket that you're waiting for the property value to go up and you're going to sell it, right? We are focused on taking back that land and getting it to people who are going to be responsible with it. Um, speaking purely as an outsider totally. to, to Detroit, you know, when, when you hear about revitalization in the city, the, the same kind of names that show up, uh-huh. Shanola, who we're, we're, we're speaking with tomorrow, and businesses of this nature, maybe also uh, some of the large car companies and, su- and such, uh-huh. in, investing in the city in different ways. Um, are there efforts to drive other smaller, more local development? Uh-huh. One thing that the mayor was really, really focused on when he came into office was creating opportunities for small entrepreneurs. So he personally fundraised and worked with um, foundations and um, J.P. Morgan Chase to basically create ways for them to for, for our Detroit entrepreneurs to gain access to capital. So we launched a program called Motor City Match, which is a program that connects connects entrepreneurs with properties in our neighborhoods so that they can open storefronts. We give out $500,000 every quarter. The vast majority of our winners are minorities and longtime Detroit residents and women um, who, are, who are really making investments in our neighborhood. That program's um, taken off. We've got the um, J.P. Morgan Entrepreneurs of Color Fund. I believe Kellogg is also a partner in that. But you've got the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund that's making loans to businesses who for a long time couldn't qualify for them because you've been in the city when during the highs and the lows. So you're not a kid coming in here with a shiny, you know, with a shiny credit credit score. You've got people who've been here when the customers weren't. So now, how do you make sure that they're positioned to take advantage of the resurgence, right? Or even make it so that we're having a true resurgence because the only way we can really be successful is if that success impacts and touches everyone. We've spoken with some people here in Detroit who feel that the city government is most responsive to larger businesses, larger entities, more economically established entities generally, uh, and that that small organizations, not just smaller businesses, but maybe smaller nonprofits and and, uh, and other organizations that are more marginal have a harder time expressing their own uh, needs finding their own space in cities. That some, I mean, how do you respond to those kind of concerns when they come up? You know, to be honest, I, I, I don't agree with them. I think, you know, our office, we spend, I would say, the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of our time focused really on our neighborhoods. We're not thinking about the large corporation or the big business that's doing something because they're taking care of themselves. Where we're needed is our neighborhood. So we look at what's happening. Um, you look at what we've done in terms of our investment in demolition. 11,000 houses down. We're now the fastest, one of the fastest in the country. We're focused on impacting our communities. We're not thinking about big businesses in, in the city. I mean, I, I think we want to support them. We want to help them create jobs. Um, we also want to help help our smaller businesses create jobs. When you look at what we do with CDBG grant dollars going to nonprofits in our community, I, I think that that's misplaced. Um, it's it's a misplaced um, critique, mm-hmm. but I, I've heard it, so I don't I don't I think there are people who are saying it. But I think when you look at what we're doing and what's happening across the city, I think it speaks for itself, mm-hmm. and our commitment speaks for itself. You have potentially hundreds of thousands of people making demands on your time uh-huh. not every day i'm sure yeah, but, yeah 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 uh but i'm you know you must hear requests that you can't honor at least in the moment mm-hmm. um what's it like to have people asking things of you that you the mayor the mayor's office the city more generally are not able to provide when that happens what's it like managing that yeah um, yeah you know, uh, uh, the mayor has a line where he says, um, you know, one day, maybe in my next life, I can come back as a politician will tell you what you want to hear, but I'll tell you what it is, right? I'll be honest with you. So I think because we've always approached the conversation with, I'll be honest with you, I think it goes over pretty well because, you know, we're not 
we're not going to say, oh, yes, we'll do this when there's no intention of doing it, right? Mm. I think what most people want is honesty. They may not be happy with your answer, but they respect you for it. So I, I try to just approach it that way and hope that, you know, while you might be mad at me over one thing I can't do, um, there might be something else that I can do. I, I do often try to find a way where I can say, well, I, I can't do this, but there is something that we're doing here and let me connect you with that person or something like that. But um, and you deal with it all the time. And I feel like as long as you're honest, you can, you know, keep it moving. Has doing this job changed the way that you move through uh, and understand this city? Absolutely. It, it's funny. I feel like I'm responsible for everything around me. Like you don't, you can't just like, I, I remember when I, I first got into this and you know, I'd, I'd be driving down the street and I'd see a, a, a light that's out and I'm like, oh gosh, that light's out. Somebody better fix that. <laughs> I'm like, wait, 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 that somebody is me. <laughs> I'm the one who has to make the call for that. Do you? So, yo, absolutely, absolutely. So I'll be driving down the street. I mean, we have Improved Detroit, which is our app that, that basically gives um, gives people the power to report a variety of things from um, lights out to dumping to stuff like that. But I have like, literally, I drive down the street and I stop and I take a picture and I text somebody. And I'm like, hey, um, this lights out. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I know you and, and typically the thing is when I when I do that they're already working on it in the department. They already know about it. It's just me being like, "Hi, I just saw this. Just want you just an FYI." And they just kind of keep, you know, and they always tell me text, "Thanks Alexis, whatever." But um yeah, no, you feel responsible for every single thing that's around you. And I I sometimes feel like, you know, I feel like sometimes like it's, it is hard to relax a little bit, and I feel like it's easy to relax when I'm not in my city because I am not responsible for everything, right? And, um, you know, I, I mean, that, that is one big change in how you, how you live and breathe in your city. When you visit other cities, do you ever have the experience of, you know, thinking, oh, man, we should, we should be doing that? Or, or, like, or do you ever feel, like, glee that, that you've got stuff together that they haven't figured out yet? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. It's a, it's a little bit of both. I, I can say I think we're pretty competitive because the mayor is You and of, other city managers? Well, or? well, no, I say me and, like, the mayor and, like, our team, oh, okay. right? Like, yeah. we, we are, like— You want to do it right. Oh, yeah. We, we like being the big kid on the yard. We like being the ones who are, who are doing everything and knocking it out the park. And when we see something that somebody else is doing better— you know, we'll think, oh, that's a great idea. We need to figure out how to do this here. Or we'll, we'll be like, well, we were the first to do this. Or, you know, glad we're doing it different. I mean, I think it's, you know, when, when you consider our goal, which is really growing the population of the city of Detroit, which is, you know, has to be accomplished on two fronts from number one thing is keeping people who are here in the city, creating opportunities and making, we've got to make living in Detroit a competitive advantage, Right. So we are constantly thinking about that. And then the other piece is, is making it an attractive place if you wanted to move here. But really, when you consider our overall goal of growing the population, we've got to keep people. So we're very competitive. I mean, that, that is one piece that, of, of us, about us that's, that's kind of funny. I love it. Is, it sounds like part of your role, and correct me if this is not an accurate characterization, but it, it seems like part of your role with projects like these is, is to advocate for them, to to get the word out or, 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 or convince other people to get the word out in their own way. Absolutely. I, I mean, that, that is a large part of what I do. Um, anything that generates, that, that requires buy-in from, from the public or requires really engagement is something that um, I oftentimes are, am tasked directly with, with working on. Now, you know, when, when, you, when, when you guys called and said you wanted to do this and I was thinking, you know, this is about working and it's about how I do my job. It was, it was kind of tough because I, I feel like every day my job changes. Like it's never the same. I mean, there's always, and it's, it's very much dictated by what our priorities are, but also what's just happening in, in, in the world. It's, it's, it's really, really fluid, um, but very rewarding. And I, you know, I feel honored to serve the mayor, but also serving the city. And this is such an amazing place filled with just great great people i mean i hope you get a chance to to go and people and uh communities across our city who are just so tight-knit mm -hmm. and have had to really rely on themselves for so many years 
And what we're trying to say is, look, now you've got a partner in your city government. We're here to, to, to those goals, those priorities you've set for yourself are the same goals we're setting as an administration. And our job is to make sure that we're in lockstep with you um, as, as we grow and move our city forward. A lot of the ways that people end up taking advantage of some of the opportunities that are available in Detroit is that they, they wind up uh, producing higher end things, luxury goods and so on. We're, we're going to, to Pony Ride tomorrow and a lot of, you know, Pony Ride, one of the businesses in that incubator sells $100 t-shirts. Um, is there ever any danger that the things Detroit is making today, the ways that Detroit is developing today aren't aimed at the people of Detroit itself as it's been for the last few decades? You know, I, I think um, Pony Ride to me is a very unique example in that that's a that's a small part part of of what we do, sure. right? Yeah, of, but I'm also thinking of, Shinola, of or even Shinola some of the, and, which sells nine hundred dollar watches. Right, right. Or, no, I you know I I think it's a balancing act. You know, while you've got a Shinola that is producing, you know, nine hundred dollar watches and bikes, you also have a company like Flexingate that's coming to the East Side that's bringing about seven hundred jobs that are manufacturing jobs. They make the um, I think they make they, they, they make auto parts, mm-hmm. and um, you got that kind of company. You got the Link Logistics company, which is also on the links on the on the west side. That's hired 200 Detroit residents. And and one thing that I think is is for me, I'm less focused on what you're making and more focused on the jobs you're creating. So a job is what matters. I, I don't necessarily, and I bet if you talk to the people who work at Shinola regardless of the price of the watch they're making, they're probably pretty pretty, um, pretty happy about their job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what really moves cities forward. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we as a city have faced is that so many people who live in the city are forced to work outside into, in the suburbs. And then you also have a high percentage of people in our city who don't have cars. So... For me, what's most critical is, are you hiring local? Because we've got to make sure that we create local jobs. Talking about working on working. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Working on working. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for coming to Detroit. Really, really appreciate it. It's been our pleasure. We've learned a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. I want to encourage you to check out Slate's Double X Gabfest, a great bi-weekly podcast about feminism, gender, sex, politics, and more. It features some of my favorite people, including Hannah Rosen, Noreen Malone, and the great June Thomas. We'd also love to hear your thoughts about working. Our email address is working at slate.com. I get all those messages in my own inbox, and I read them, and I, I do try to respond to them. They mean a lot to us, and they're helpful uh, and important. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.